Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is a big one. Uh, we are talking to a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Greg Rico, drummer for, well, many, many things. But the big one probably is Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, legends. One of the biggest, greatest, most important bands in history. And he was the original drummer. He left around 1971, just as things started to sort of fall off a cliff for Sly and the rest of the band as well. But he's there in the beginning for the good times. He um, he plays on this one, obviously, right here, uh, Want to Take You Higher, and then lots of the hits after that. What's interesting about this conversation is we did this one back in September, and at the time, there was a lot of talk around Sly, but nothing concrete. And since then, Sly has released his memoir, and apparently it's not getting very good reviews because it's not really all that thorough. I'm of the opinion that Sly and the Family Stone are, should be the next band to receive the big queen treatment, or whatever it is, the Ray Charles treatment, or the ABBA treatment, or whatever. They need a movie, or a documentary, or something definitive to tell this story before it just fades away. There is so much to be had here. You might remember we had Joel Selvin on earlier this year to talk about his book, but that was written back in the 90s, and it's an oral history. It's not very thorough. So anyway, I wanted to bring Greg on here to talk about, you know, that odd Grammy performance with Sly, Woodstock, obviously, Questlove and the Summer of Soul movie, and then just tons of other stuff like that. Also, we talk about Santana. He's done some work with Santana. He produced Betty Davis. Betty Davis's first album, Greg produced that. It's crazy. He also played with Bill Wyman, Lee Oscar, David Bowie. And uh, he's in, he's really kind of excited about a newer project that he's got going on right now called Stick People, where him and a bunch of other legendary drummers get together on Zoom, and during lockdown they were doing this, and just sort of performing for each other. Then they started recording it. Then they built a website out of it. So anyway, it's a really big deal too. We are so lucky to still have people like Greg in our lives tell these stories and uh, I wanted to capture it for all of you. Again, I try not to throw the word around, the word legend around very often, but that's exactly what he is. All right. He called me from his home in Las Vegas. I'm not tired this morning, but yeah. we went to House of Blues last night and said, and we'll call it with Santana. <clears throat> if we had, and one of my old buddies, Neil Sean was down there. He flew down from San Francisco. He was there too. Um, so we just had fun. There's just, you know, a lot of energy grained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you still, you went to the house of blues to play with Santana or to watch him or to see him or what? Both. Really? Oh man. All the above. Yeah. I sat in. Yeah. It was cool. We had, you know, I, I, I went and sat in with him a couple of times there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's been there like for, you know, 10, 11 years. Mm -hmm. They do a couple weeks time, then he goes out on the road and comes mm -hmm. back and does a couple more weeks, you know. It's nice, That's... you know, back in the day, no one wanted to play in Las Vegas, you know. Now, everybody has residency there. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's a different world. But, you know, 60s and 70s, we were all on the road. I, no one, you know, Las Vegas is the last place anybody wanted to play, you know. You, mm -hmm. couldn't, you know, and, and then things, in the 80s, I think they kind of was really at a low point 
Um, and then, you know, it's kind of re- reinvent, not kind of, it reinvented itself and it's continuing to do so. And this place is, I mean, so many people moving here, artists, yeah. you know, and residency and I mean, you got all the ball franchises here. You got yeah. everything with all great venues, you know, cutting edge venues. The new sphere just opened up with that, mm-hmm. uh, sound it's called very cool. You know? That's great. That's yeah. great. And you're such a San Francisco fixture. I'm guessing all of the legends, like Carlos or whoever, whenever they want to play, they call on you because you'll be there. Well, you know, well, he, you know, he's got his band. He's got he's uh, married true. to Cindy. But it's an, ex- it's an it's a it's a it's an excuse to have an old friend come sit in who's local and part of the fabric of San Francisco music. Yeah, he's really all about that. He, you know, he he cherishes his uh, old relationships and, you know, that's had for a long time, so, mm-hmm. as I do. And yeah. So, it's, yeah. That's great. Um, I was going to save this for later, but I'll throw it in now since we're talking about Carlos. We, we have Patreon supporters, and I'll let them know yeah, who what? I'm interviewing. We have Patreon supporters, and... Okay. Uh, I let them know who I'm interviewing. They, they basically make donations and um, to the uh-huh. podcast. And I let them know who I'm interviewing. And if they want, they can submit questions. And one of them, Michael Bagford, wanted to know specifically about the Carlos and Buddy Miles album, which is just a oh, monster, yeah. especially that whole second side. You're on that. Are you the main drummer on that? Are you one of several? I don't know much about the background of that album, but it's so good. It, me and Buddy uh, okay. both have drum set on stage, and we are playing at the same time through okay. the whole set. Um, and it was kind of put together like I, I was doing some stuff with with Buddy at the time. I just and and um, and we had an opportunity to go back then. We were going like every year early seventies for one with one, you know, group or configuration of another, you know, at during, um, what was it? New Year's Eve at the crazy, mm-hmm. I mean, the crazy, what was his name? Tom Moffat. He was a, he was a DJ there in Hawaii at, you know, ran one of the big stations and he used to promote the crater festival music scenes. Hold on a second. Hi. All right. See you tomorrow. Um, and uh, so uh, this, we had an opportunity to go, and Columbia wanted to record it. 
And so we said, we've got, you know, Neil, Sean, and Carlos, myself, and Buddy, and most of, like, the whole percussion section from Santana and uh, and a few additional people. It was, uh, let's see, Buddy's bass player, uh, was named Ron Johnson, I think. Um, and, and we went, we just, we had a blast. It was great. Matter of fact, you know, Carlos and I were talking about um, doing a remaster of it, just remastering it, mixing it, like that, but remastering it. And I have the Super 8 millimeter video of the whole oh. thing. Oh. It kind of packaged that with it. Yes. And now the, 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 the film didn't have any audio, but we got the audio that we recorded there, and we'll just kind of like just kind of overlay it, not that it'll be synced up with it. So, all the images starting from when we left Waikiki and on our way up to Diamond Head and driving up where all the people were coming in. There's a lot of people there. It's like, you know, about 80,000, 90,000 people. It's pretty big. You know, it's the Diamond Head crater. And it was an army base. And I think it might still be army base or partially, but they, they let us, you know, use it for the concert. And it was, it was full of people, cool vibe. It was, it was great. We had a That's wonderful great. time. That yeah. whole second half of um, Freeform Funkified Filth, is that, yeah. was any of that pre-rehearsed? I don't um, know. Was that a thing you guys did on, on that whole tour, is just spend like 26 minutes jamming to whatever? What was the story of yeah. that one? That, at that, we actually did... We do in the studio. I don't remember. One of them we oh, did really? that done in the studio and just kind of overlaid the audience on it. Or, or we could have. I don't remember if, if mm. we did. Or it was done live, and there was some overdubs on it for sure in the studio because there was some little bit of technical stuff where we had to do some of the instruments over. Um, so I guess it was live. Mm. Yeah, I you know I mean this is something talking a long time ago. Sure, of course. I was just curious. It gets yeah, foggy. Of course. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, let me let's pivot then. Let's talk about Sly for a minute. First of all, what when's the last time you saw Sly? Um, jeez. Oh, the last time I seen him, a long time ago. Oh, what? No, there was there was a thing in Oakland where they did a a, a tribute to the band. We had this where we all got together and uh, there was a, a concert at the Paramount Theater in Oakland with a big orchestra and everything and mm. tribute to the before that we had a little thing with a small smaller group of people uh, where it was you know uh, Sly and Cynthia and Freddie and Jerry myself and it was like a Q&A thing and we went in this room they filmed it they filmed some of it, I think. Anyway, I think that was the last time I seen him. Okay. And he was, he was getting around pretty good. Uh, that, that, that had to be, geez, 10, 12 years ago, maybe even okay. a little more. And the, oh, go ahead, please. Yeah, and I think it was around that. It could have been a little before, a little after. This was after, actually. So, actually, the, uh, the last time would have been in the studio. Uh, Sony wanted to do interview everybody. And so I had arranged uh, uh, Fantasy Studios up in Berkeley for them to come and film this and, and, and talk about the new album that they were putting out, 
which which was just it was a new album. I mean, it was a recording of us performing Fillmore East, Bill Grant's Fillmore East, in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1968, 69 or something. I've been listening to that. So good. Yeah, yeah it was great. I mean, the band was at the top of this game at that time. Yep. And, you know, they recorded it. And on the bill that night, believe it or not, I mean, it, people have sent me pictures of the tickets that they got, like, uh, the, 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 for nostalgia, you know, they somehow got it online, bought it somewhere, and people sent me a picture. So check the bill out. Mm. Jimmy Hendrix. Airport Cannibals and Slime of Family Stone, seven dollars. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yes. that's how it was. Yeah, you know. Oh man, that's that crazy. Music. I can't. I've been anyway. listening to that nonstop, getting ready to talk to you, and you on the track. Are you ready? Is just monstrous. It's it's one of the songs that I think is you at your best. I don't even know, even know if you remember that doing that, but I want to well, mention it to you specifically. Are you speaking the live performance of Fillmore? Yeah. Or the, oh, Fillmore yeah. East, yeah, yeah, 68, 69, or whatever it's called. No, as a matter of fact, I do remember it. Do you? Oh. You know, one of you know. I mean, when when we performed, you know, it was always a little bit different. But there's certain songs that just had to have certain elements in it that mm-hmm. like you, know, you 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 had to deliver and that was one of those you know you couldn't be like laying back on it you had mm-hmm. to deliver it mm-hmm. yeah i am yeah i'm curious um I, i'm gonna jump ahead for a minute and when when there was that reunion at the grammys in 2006 i was i remember watching that in real time because i was just shocked that this was even going to happen and then, as you know, he saunters out for about two minutes and plinks a little thing and things inaudibly for a minute. And then he just leaves. And you have to hold down the beat of want to take you higher. So you're busy the whole time. But everyone else, like Steven Tyler, is everyone's kind of looking at each other, looking at Sly. What are we supposed to do? Uh, I, we got to keep this going, but I'm not exactly sure what's happening here. I wondered how... How was that plan? Did you rehearse? It was was Sly around for any rehearsals? Did you make it up as you went along? What's the story of that performance? Well, you're very observant. And yes, <laughs> that was live. There's no take two. Nope. Of who, who knows? You know, tens of billions of people watching it around the planet. Yep. And, you know, it was like... Um, so, 
yeah, we had rehearsed, not with everybody that was on a stage. That was like, is what they should. It's just like I confused and walked off the stage, <laughs> and you know, everybody turned around and looked at me. I don't know if you could see that on the footage from the camera, but they looked at it. What the mm, did we do? <laughs> and and I'm going, oh my god. And, you know, because he was supposed to do, like, a breakdown with the audience. I want to take you higher, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, like we do with that song live. Mm -hmm. And um, it, so when he walked off, everyone sort of, and so I'm thinking, I got to find a play. You know, you can't, you can't do oops or redo this. You, you're going to have to do something that's got to be real, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, hey, I found a place where we could, you know, we're kind of, we're grooving and everybody has to, you know, I tried to, like, we kind of keep a, a confident face, you know uh -huh. what I mean? So this, this whole thing doesn't come apart, you know? And so I just found a place to get out. Everybody vibed it and we did it together. We ended the song, uh -huh. but that was the kind of a hairy moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had you, did you, you probably didn't know he was going to do, did he show up for rehearsals? Did you talk to him about anything before he came on we, stage? We had some rehearsals prior. Mm. Uh, no, I'm not mixing up the Coachella festivals. Jeez. Oh, wait a minute here now. He might not even have been at the rehearsal for the Grammy thing. Mm. Um, it sure and, looks like he might not have been. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, as a matter of fact, I don't think so, because um, now that I think about it, but we had what we were going to do. I mean, you know, playing the songs. I mean, that was nothing. And everybody knew the song. So, you know, we, that, and even in, in improvising uh, on the mo in the moment would have been cool. But he got confused. Mm -hmm. And he, because there was so many people on stage, I think if they had, you know, the tribute, like it went along, you know, and everybody came out and did a little piece. And then when he came out, if they would have had everybody else leave the stage and just, you know, just us kind of, it might've been, it might've went a little different mm -hmm. uh, with all the people and just, you know, this might be too pointed a question. I'm curious when it comes to discussing things like that, do you find yourself more, as like a sly apologist, or do you find yourself, does that conjure up PS, PTSD? Like, this is exactly why I left in 71, because I was so sick of dealing with this kind of stuff. Or is it like, hey, man, that's sly. We love him for who he is. It's A-OK. -okay. Yeah, I don't have, I don't feel that I apologize. Kind of like every, when you're talking, when the subject comes up, whether it be the uplifting, inspiring things that, yeah. that we create, or even, you know, the dark moments or not necessarily dark, but the, just this, this chaos that mm -hmm. kind of he, he had uh, uh, around occasionally or often, mm -hmm. actually, mm -hmm. whether it be, you know, no shows or just these kinds of a challenges. It's just like, I, I never feel like I had to apologize to it. It's just kind of like mm -hmm. people just really curious to hear, you know, my take on it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, and like, like I just did with you know telling you, and it was interesting because you really, you you got it, but <laughs> look at it and understood that that's it, it, just more or less how I felt. Yeah, I mean what you were how I felt too. You know, I yeah. just gave this 
what actually happened. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, it's, I would imagine being under his employee would be difficult because there are times when you hear him on like Dick Cavett or something and he, or Mike Douglas, and he is so lucid. He's such an impressive, intelligent person. When he's all yeah. there and he's sober and he's lucid. And when he's not, he just seems like a complete mess. And you don't know which yeah. guy is going to be there. And if the lucid guy is there, it's, it's heaven. You're going to create magic in those moments. And if he's not, you don't know what's going on. Well, let me say this. In the beginning, and in like the first half or <clears throat> a little bit more of our careers as, as the original group uh, was, um, it was... It was incredible. Mm -hmm. He was always spot on. There was a, a, a very deep focus on the music and what we came to do. And that was it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until later on that when the focus became, you know, more on just, you know, the chemicals and that kind of stuff and not the music. And that's when it kind of changed. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of tardiness late. Yeah. No show, even, and that's when I, I really got disillusioned. I just, you know, I bet. Yeah, I bet. So, are, are you even on the "There's a Riot Coming" or the "Riot yeah. Out" "Riot Going On" album? Yeah, yeah there's a couple tracks that uh, we. Have I know "Love and Hate" has you know a nice drum intro. I also just imagine him in a laboratory completely gacked out on drugs, just doing everything by himself on a keyboard or something. Well, I got like that a little later where he started doing like most uh, everything, you know, cause the group started sputtering and mm -hmm. I, I left first. So I never came down for riot for any of those sessions. Mm -hmm. uh, but he had used a couple tracks that we oh. had recorded or, and had never finished. For okay. instance, uh, 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 thank you, talking to me, Africa, which is mm -hmm. like a down deep funk version of thank you for letting me be mm -hmm. myself again. Yeah, you know? mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and um, it was Family Affair on there. Yeah, Family Affair. You know, so there was a couple tracks that were that we had recorded earlier, and that were on there. Okay, when yeah. you heard that final album, what were your thoughts? Because it sounds to me like probably what it is—a guy just drowning in drugs. Well, you know, it, it, it was darker than what we had previously presented in the doing. 
because it was darker. I mean, it's what was that title suggests? There's a riot yeah. going on. Yeah, and it was in all those changes. You're hearing those things take effect. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, there were still some brilliant moments in it, and yep. uh, I, you know, when I seen it and I looked at it, I wrote it. I go, yeah, well, I understood. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was curious. I was reading Joel Selvin's book, The Oral yeah. History. That ca- it came out in the 90s, but it was re-released recently, and he came on here to talk about it. That's what sparked me reaching out to you again to see if you'd come on. Right. And, um, you know, you really capture – it captures a glimpse of the chaos that it must have been like to be in that situation. Some of the, some of the things I took from the, from the book, though, was some of the good times. Like, I, I was curious about this. First of all – no one thought you were a good enough drummer. Is that right? And they were going to go after Frosty from Lee Michaels' band? Do I have this right? You're talking about the very beginning. Yeah, the very beginning. Uh, no, but, but Frosty was, there was only two drummers on the table from what I understood. Okay. Uh, it was, uh, they were, he was thinking about Frosty, and then when he talked to Freddie, and we had a group called the Stun Souls, Freddie and I, and he said, well, why don't you bring someone for your group? And Freddie says, well, just, you know, you wanted to bring me. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so I guess originally maybe uh, Sly was thinking uh, about Frosty. He was playing with Lee Michaels then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, whatever the case may be, when we started from day one, I was there. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, you know. Maybe him and Freddie might have talked. I'm not sure what. And yeah. Jerry Moore, too, I think. And they said, well, <clears throat> let's go with Greg. You know, and then yeah. I showed, you know, the first day. And we, we didn't even play the first day. We talked. And it was really cool. Everyone just kind of, you know, looked at each other and just talked about what we were going to do. And it was we were very excited. And the next week, five days, we... Uh, we started playing, talking about, you know, at first we had to, we wanted to learn, you know, just put cover tunes together so we could start gigging. But the, the intent was to put original music together. But at first, again, we had to start gigging. So did some cover tunes, but we were going to take these tunes and make them our own. I mean, that was whole, just create a new thing, a new sound, a new vibe. So whatever we were going to do musically, we wanted to just put our stamp on it and be yeah. the, ingredient, the ingredient of what was present, mm-hmm. you know. When you're having those talks originally, is Sly outwardly saying the mission statement, which is multiracial, multigender, we want to be the everyday people. We're going to show a little bit of everybody here. Or yeah. is that just not pre-designed? No, that... The, the the intent was was that intent was there. Yeah, he was feeling feeling that it all made sense. It was very you know fundamental and logical and all that. And it just so it was just kind of like we just stayed out of the way of it. Let's mm-hmm. put this stuff on the table, put it together, and and start cooking. You know. Yeah. And um, so I mean, you you felt that it was going to be. And usual, and it was. I remember. I remember saying, "Well, the first moment 
uh, we started playing, she's like, she put, she kind of put her horn to the side and she's just listening. She was kind of memorized. She goes, Oh, and so I looked at her and goes, play, play, you know, that's great. Kind of like that. Speaking of which, where is Frosty? I think he's still alive. He's another kind of guy and Lee Michaels for that matter, who have just fallen off the grid completely. Do you keep in touch with I, either of them? I mean, no, that was so long ago. I don't yeah, know. I didn't know if you knew them from like the scene or anything like that. Put out a couple more things. I think they did a few things and then yeah. Yeah, just kind of with the years I heard little this and that and then just disappeared. And quite frankly, I think I, I might have even, I don't, I didn't know if I'd be mean, like, we weren't mm. friends or nothing, mm. but you know, I think I may have met him once just casually. Oh, okay. So, yeah. We were talking about the San Francisco scene. I wondered if they were a part of that. You guys, you know, kept in touch or everybody sort of knows each other. Um, Most of us, a lot of us did, but not, not everybody. I mean, there was yeah. so many amazing, uh, matter of fact, a documentary just came out last week called San Francisco Sounds, I think. It's on MGM Plus. And it was a, a time period and all this uniqueness that was coming out of San Francisco. It was just the magical, you know, I, I call it the re musical renaissance of the late 60s, early 70s, because yeah. it really was. And there was no, I mean, there was all these different elements because San Francisco was always kind of like a melting pot intersection. I mean, people from all over the world, music from all over the world, and everybody just had their own thing and, you know, did their own thing. Uh, the spirit of it was was similar, meaning that the music that was coming out of it was kind of all-inclusive, you know, and, mm -hmm. and anything. And so there were really a lot of unique, you know, uh, musical entities that were popping up. I mean, with yeah. different from each other. Yeah. And then it's all powerful, you know. And so, yeah. and so this kind of starts presenting that. It starts out with Bill Graham when he first came to the Bay Area mm -hmm. and what created, you know, and, and all the psychedelic music that was coming out, you know, the Dead, the Starship, and all this. And then the second part, uh, kind of deals with and where that went to in, in the late sixties, like you know Santana and us, and uh, and still all the bands that continued, and all the musics and artists that came out of there. Great writing. It's still yeah. these songs will live today. You know. Yeah, yeah. I am of the opinion, and maybe you can confirm this. I'm of the opinion that the next band that deserves the full. Queen or Ray Charles or whatever treatment is Sly and the Family Stone. This story, the mere fact that Sly is still alive somewhere out there and has, but has, has been, there have been so few sightings for so long that this yeah. story needs to be told in its entirety, warts and all. And it's just sitting there waiting for the right person to come along and make a theatrical movie about it, a documentary about it. I don't care. A multi-series for Netflix or something. But this story, it's the story of Sly and the Family Stone is sort of eroding or it's getting weaker as the decades go on because no one like Sly is out there to carry the torch, yeah. you know? And it, we yeah. don't want that to happen. You're one of the most important bands that's ever been. People are going to forget. Do you ever get approached for those kinds of projects? Well, it's it's funny you ask that, and actually, and what you're saying is true. There's two 
forces going on. There's the, the, the songs that we did and the, and the strength of those and the spirit of those is still continuing to keep reinventing itself. Like you ask people, you know, younger generations, they don't know who Slime the Family Stone is, but then you play one of the songs, oh, is that that group? Yeah. Yeah. We definitely know. Yeah. You know, and so to address exactly what you said, um, so Questlove is, is his new film that he's working on. And, but now, now, this, now that's, from, from what I understand, and I was already, you know, interviewed before mm-hmm. that, and it, he's doing, is what he wants to focus on is what, the spirit of what the group was and the uplifting, yeah. the that we wore and what we did. Not but the other drama. Mm-hmm. So that's focusing on this. And I don't know what the release date is, but he's working on yeah. it. It's coming okay. along. So, so on and so forth. Now, the, the, fi- the possible film of the drama of the greatness and the darkness mm-hmm. that it was, and actually, maybe you could say, continues to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Someone called me two weeks ago. Uh, it was this producer that uh, actually worked for Warner Brothers back in the 80s, and he did a couple records with Sly. So he had direct, you know, um, you know, he, he was involved with Sly for, through, the, through the ages, I think it was. Mm-hmm. His name is Mark. He is working on the script for the drama. Oh, good. For the, he, not not a documentary, but the movie. Yes. Of our story. Yeah, it so, it needs to be told, and I'm so glad you mentioned Questlove. He is the guy to do at least, like you were saying, the first part, the the uplifting part. He's the guy to yeah. do this. I mean, uh, yeah. when you watch that documentary that he did, Summer of Soul, about the Harlem Festival and everything, and your part in that. He, uh, that was just, that's a masterful documentary. He did it so beautifully. He is the guy to tell this story. I think that's great. He is the guy, and he made it well known that that's what he's going to do during all the presence and shiny lights that came on. He said the uh, Summer of Soul, I mean, that thing won every accolade that's that's out there. Yep. Movies. So yeah, I'm, I'm proud of with him and what he's doing, and uh, he's uh, a great guy. And we spent he's some the time best. together. Good. So I'm looking forward. To that. That's going to be nice. Good. And yeah, the story, the whole story, the drama would be the interest time for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, um, yeah. So uh, I don't know who all's going to be involved yet, but uh, they're throwing around some interesting names and good and. Conversation I had with Mark uh, is uh, he was focusing in on something, some specific scene, you know, and he ran the whole. I don't want to repeat right now what it was, but but he ran the whole thing. That he was spot on. What his 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 uh, inspiration for it, his depth and in diving into it, and how he wants it to come out to really say accurately what this scene was, this particular event, and so uh, it's it's start definitely starting off right track in good direction. Yeah, good. Good, as it level. should. I wanted to ask you about Summer of Soul because that the actual event, my understanding, took place right around Woodstock. And it was four. It was what? 
three weeks before. That's and right. You know, What's weird is my reality and my understanding was always that we did that just after Woodstock. It was one of these last minute, you know, outdoor festivals that we just kind of took at the last minute and we did it. And I didn't know uh, several things about this until I filmed the interview with, with Q yeah. uh, uh, for that movie. And that, no, it wasn't a week after. It was three weeks before. And that... It wasn't just a one-day event. I thought we were, like, headlining this one-day festival. It was a whole week or, or so of all these artists. These yeah. Wonder and Night and Mongo Santa Brians and... Uh, Fifth and Dimension and... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I but I didn't see any of that footage. I did have our footage, with like, a week after we had done it. So all these years I had that, I'm always thinking how come this never came out? No one ever thought, you know, never seen the light of day. And that's part of the dichotomy, the whole thing. When quest love was presented with doing, I never directed a film, but, but you know, they talk and then, so when he went to see the first screening of the footage, there are a couple months, minutes into it. And, and, you know, he's a music historian, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. It's great. I understand a lot about music history. A couple minutes into his first time seeing it, there's you know, and there's this little room, and there's a few people in there, and he, he stands up and says, "Wait, stop the film!" And he turns around there, and the people there, and he goes, "How come I never heard of this event?" And like almost angry, like, "What? Yeah, what is this? This is amazing! I I never even heard about. But it's never been in the page. No one ever talked about it. It was just like." rolled over by what happened with stock and just i've always felt that there might have been some political or maybe even business things that weren't right in the background of the people that put this together and, and maybe that why because yep. historically i mean look at what ended up happening with it you, yep. you know you, when i seen it when i seen nina simone and somebody's uh, uh somebody's performances i was just i had chills it was yeah amazing same same it's beautiful. That that was that's that was going to be my question: is what your memories of that time period? Two of the, I mean, we know now what an important event that Harlem uh, Arts Festival was at the time. We didn't know, but um, to have been at both those things at that time, what what is your lasting memory of Woodstock? I, I don't. I'm sure you've been asked a billion times, but when you think of Woodstock, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Um, Woodstock was fabulous. Woodstock was a one of a kind magical event that you know was would was not scripted or planned it it came together because of just uh you know with all the challenges that it it had as where it was going to be and all these different things you know just the, what was going on at the time and little communities out in the country that were kind of scared were afraid to have all people you know converge on in their little town i mean which is understandable but Michael and the people who were involved, they just kept flowing with it. And and then that, you know, guy Max Yager just stepped up at the end of the day after, after a lot of places, counties were turning them down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were at the time. It started out to be a uh, an arts and music, a small arts and music festival with the Grateful Dead, actually, which was the headline. And, you know, it, look what it turned out to be. It was way yeah. beyond. And Jerry and, and all the guys in the dead have always said like it was probably one of their worst.
<laughs> you know, and, but but that's where the the seed was planted yeah. with them. That, you know, with this whole idea of doing a music and arts festival. Yeah, and it ended in a, an historic event. You know? Yeah, it is. Um, Okay, a couple more questions about Sly, and then I want to talk about the rest of your career because there's so much other yeah. fun stuff in there. One thing is when I was reading the book, um, I was struck by the idea that the dance to the music album was seen as a compromise, I guess, because the first album, I guess, didn't do that well. And so I think Clive Davis may have stepped in and said, "We, I want you to do something a little more, I don't know, commercial. Do I have that right? Well, more or less, yes. Okay. Uh, the uh, the first album was just pure us, you know. I mean, it was just there was no commercial consideration. What's going on inside the head of the day? Run, run, run to avoid the hassling. When he finds you, you know his mind is wrestling. Said, yeah, the groovy music inside my head is soaking. And the dimension comes on to tell me what ought to be smoking. It was just, there was no other consideration but just to, to capture what we were about, what we were about to do. Yeah. And, you know, so it was good. I mean, but, you know, I mean, when it came out, uh, you know, it didn't, it wasn't like, uh, it was, you know, musicians had it. Yeah. Like, okay. Musicians had the album, but I mean, as far as the general public, it went right by them. Yeah. And the, you didn't know how to market it. It was just like the same, a whole new thing. They didn't know what yeah. to do with it. Because it didn't have any, you know, little attributes that, you know, were what you would want to embrace and, and develop in, in, in a project. This was pure, purely our musical vision and what we were feeling and what we were about, you know, it was like yeah. introduced the thing. So, yeah, you know, David did go, David Kaplan, <clears throat> who was the VP of Epic Records, he did, and he became our manager. You know, he did talk to Sly. He goes, you know, and he didn't want to, like, say, well, you got to do this and you got to do that. It wasn't nothing like that. It was like he just had a conversation saying, Sly, you know, this this musical entity is incredible. and It's just got this, this, it can say so much. But why don't you try to come up with some songs that'll engage directly the audience mm -hmm. on, 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 and bring them in. And then once they're paying attention, watching, then you could go from there. So it, it was, it was kind of like, it was a conscious effort for him. Uh, dance to music was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, what I do to engage everybody on a, on a, on a, just a logical, easy, comfortable subject. Dance. Let's all dance to music. Let's yeah. Have some fun.
And that, what that was about, and you know, I remember the first time I heard that song on the radio, it just popped out because it had the voices, <laughs> elements, and all the things that we were, but it was just fun and celebrative, you know? Absolutely. So, well, and that's what you guys yeah. were so good at there for a while, especially with Stand, I think is my favorite Sly album, but just, you know, uplifting, inspirational it had all the right elements in it there for a while. And then it all just <laughs> crashed. Which we knew how to do that. Yeah. Then it was, so you could, okay, step up the subject matters of what you're saying. Step mm -hmm. up where you're going to go. It's like, we kind of like, you know, we, we figured out how to do that and, and, yeah. and develop in a really incredible way. Yeah. And that's, and that is a stand album. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. I want to ask you about sampling because you and Sly, the whole band, get sampled a lot under as yeah. you should. I wonder if, like, for instance, I was listening back to the whole new thing album and "Trip to Your Heart." Uh, the beginning is sampled by LL Cool J and Mama Said right. Knock You Out. And I'm curious when does anyone? How does sampling work? Does anyone talk to you about it first? Are you, do you have to clear anything or do you hear mama said on the radio and just think that is awesome? What is, or do you, does it make you angry? What is your thoughts? I've never been angry about it. Uh, uh, and yes, uh, it has to be, uh, licensed for the record company. So in this case, yeah, I should have been involved, but a lot of the business matters were never straightforward and, and done in a way that they should have been done where it was yeah. inclusive with the should have been included. Um, so the artists usually would uh, sample some, I'm sure a lot of time because th there's thousands of samples of our performances. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, through, um, I had kind of stopped touring and, and I was raising a family and I used to hear stuff on the radio I was not touring anymore. So I kind of got out of it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I go, God, man, it sounds like me. And I didn't know. For, I, I would, I'm embarrassed to say, years would go by before <laughs> I realized, oh, that is me. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, then, and then I, you know, people, the computers came around and uh -huh. <laughs> I got a computer. I got on the internet and, you know, just found out that well, there's a whole world happening that I didn't even realize. And anyway, I, I've, I've always been kind of, it was kind of inspiring saying, well, geez, you know, yeah. what I did, it meant something. And, uh -huh. um, and, and there's new artists that are taking that and doing something with it. It's, it was kind of inspiring. I decided I'd like to have, you know, a, a little coin from the, all that sure. they produced. Understood. But you deserve it. Yeah. It, yeah. It's kind of, way it eventually comes to you in different forms in oh, different boy. ways okay last question when you think back to being in sly and the family stone what is the thing that you don't miss at all my total experiences when they don't miss i don't know I, I you know i don't think of what i don't miss as as much as 
what comes to mind first is the joy and yeah. and, and the of, of you know and of, you know when we used to play and when it would all come together and you know those feelings and the songs and all that. I mean, yeah, I, I don't miss you know no shows and some of the chaos that ended up happening near the you know, the, the fading of the original group. Um, but you know, there's nothing that okay. You know, I mean, it is more joy I think than good. You know, that's great. I, I walked away and changed, you know, and just got into uh, doing the had the wonderful opportunities to do a lot of other incredible yeah. projects and and so. You know, it's all good. Good. All right, let's talk about some of those. I I didn't know until, or if I knew, I forgot. Until getting ready to talk to you, you played with Betty Davis. I produced Betty's first record. Oh my gosh, and, Greg! And that is huge. Yeah, Betty she's this. The, as you know, she's this lost legend. Speaking of people like Lee or Sly or anyone else, I mean, she's dead now, but she wasn't. And no one knew who she was, and they're finding these albums and how funky and amazing they are. And no one, yeah. she won't, you know, come come out of the shadows to take credit. Well, no, she has since, but that she she was recluse for decades, yes. disappeared, and fortunately, she passed away a couple of years. Fortunately, she was realized and recognized, and 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 got some of the accolades of those things before she passed and um yeah she was she was good i always refer to her like a george clinton yes a female a female version of george clinton 10 years before mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she's and, incredible um, they made a documentary about her and if i remember right she doesn't show up she talks on the phone i think to to the band well, members or something but that's it yeah she didn't want to be filmed uh, but she uh, she agreed part of the doc and and all this and they actually did film. Uh, there is some interview in there in the room with her. Uh, with the, she shadowed out and is swimming back of her, oh. and that's all. That's the most. And I was surprised she even did that because I remember yeah. when she finally opened up and started talking a little bit. Uh, when I when I when I had got uh, finally you know got. Contact and a number, and found out where she was and how she was doing. This was a project. This is like this is over ten years of going on. Matter of fact, through the decades when she would disappear, and nobody knew where she was, I'd get phone calls sometimes from a writer or a film producer or musicologist from different countries around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, where is? How do I get old of Betty Davis? Where, mm -hmm. where you know and. And I didn't have nothing to tell him because I didn't know. And yeah. it wasn't Larry Graham called me one day. Larry Graham called and he was uh, touring, you know, with his group, Grand Association. And someone, he was in Philly, uh, Philly or Pittsburgh, big Pittsburgh. Uh, and uh, someone came up to him and introduced him, himself to Larry as it was Betty's brother. And she goes, you know, I got a phone number for Betty and... Um, and it, I don't know if he did it out of the spirit of just trying to help her or maybe break mm -hmm. the ice. So, and then Larry called me and gave it to me. And then we hooked her up with the, some people that were interested in, in getting together and to want to help her. Yeah. And she actually, uh, some of these people who came, stepped up and helped her get royalties and money, you know, from, from 
years and hook up. She she was living. She was destitute. I mean, she was living in a in a home and being taken care of. Uh, and it wasn't you know it wasn't cool. Yeah. And when I remember first com- conversing with her, so when first couple phone calls were like, this is all that came out. Yeah. Oh, hello, Greg. Yeah. Oh, okay. I gotta go. Sorry. Boom. That was the first. That's all you. Okay. And it went from that to introducing her to folks, getting some help. She's realizing she is relevant. People want to know who she is, where she is, and all that. She didn't know this. Yeah. And she was in a deep, you know, depressive, you know, one removed state. Yeah. And this, it all came around, fortunately, again, before she passed. And, and she even started writing again. And she's a ecologist. Yeah. I just got up from um, Nona Hendricks, who's doing a tribute in some kind of a, I don't know if it's a big concert documentary. I'm supposed to talk to her again soon. And she wants me to get involved in, in this uh, project. But it's, it's really cool. It came full circle. And it's just always that uh, is great. amazing on this you know she was betty was never a household name or never no. had like a record or anything but there's a, a an incredible uh, uh underground fan base that she yes. has worldwide, you know and yes. it's and then just it used to grow you know yes yeah. um when you like was miles around when you produced that album no, she had already split up. Michael okay. Carabell, the player with Santana, was going out with her. And this mm. was about a year after the, her and Miles had split up. And Mike Mike actually knew and he was, used to hang out with Miles a lot. And he lived in New York. Okay. Anyway, he, we were working on a project, Michael and I, and... Um, and he says, hey, Greg, you know, Betty wants, would like to meet you. He's like, come out from New York and meet you. So we were in the studio in San Francisco. And uh, she came out. We met one day and talked a little bit and, and just to hit it off. You know, she was really a, a, a fan of the group uh-huh. and all that. And only what she was doing. And the next day we got together again and she asked me, you know, I got an opportunity to do a record. I got a record deal and I'd like you to produce it. So... You know, at wow. that time, it, uh, this is around 73, 74, um, I, I believe. And, you know, the Barry was like, it was just like a kid in a candy store. Yeah. As far as, you know, I had yes. Larry Grant, uh, the Pointer Sisters, before they had their, you know, yes. they came out. And Neil Sean and all kinds of, it's just a great Tower Power Horn section. There's all these people on this new music. And very, Betty was, all she had was a little cassette with ideas, little bits and pieces of ideas. And that's together, you know, but she was very focused on what she wanted to end up with, what she wanted in direction. Really? So that level of funk. That was intentional. Mm-hmm. That was she. That was the game plan all along. Well, you know, yes, and okay. she had she had did some she had did some recording even with Miles. Oh, Columbia on two years ago put it out, and they should have kept it in the can. Yeah. It was the reason why, and for decades, and she just said, you know, 
this isn't, uh, this is not what I want to do. She knew what she wanted to do. I mean, she, so she had all these cats that, you know, Miles, the Teal, uh, produced it and, you know, all some very extremely heavy jazz world players on this stuff. But it's just not, it wasn't saying what she wanted to say. Music was mm-hmm. saying. Yeah. So she was very focused on, on, uh, where she wanted to go and what she wanted to end That's up great. with. Someday we might have to do a whole hour just on that. I would, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated by her. No well, one like her. What a, what a trendsetter. You know, she went on, she wanted me to go on tour and all that with her too. And I, I, and I was busy with some other things. So uh-huh. she put together and, and, and subsequently I ended up producing her second and third album herself. And she did a great job with it. Yeah. You know, they're so good. Um, yeah. You mentioned uh, Power of Power. Emilio's been on here. I just saw them in concert about a month ago. So, so great. And when he was on here, we talked about the Bill Wyman stuff. And you're on there, too. And uh, oh, one. Oh. is it? So tell me again, are you on one album? Are you on one song? Where, where does it fit in? If I remember correctly, it was just, you know, uh, who was it? Gary Kelvin, Record Plan. I think he produced it, right? Okay. You know, he called me. Someone called me today. Want want to want you to come down and do a session on a Bill Wyman album? I said, sure. I don't even remember how many songs I did. <laughs> I've read competing things. I read one. You're on one song on the solo Stone Alone album. Stone Alone, yeah, yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure. That must have been a trip. Did you know him? Did you know the Stones very well? Well, I, I mean, I knew the Stones like everyone knew the well, Stones. Well, I I, but you're in the music business. I didn't know if you two partied somewhere or well, who knows what you did. Well, later on. There was uh, some interchange a lot of things. Matter of fact, my good, very good friend Steve Jordan is playing drums. Yes, for them, right? And uh, I ended up going to a, you know, they were in uh, Milan, was in Italy, so I went out to Milan, hung out, you know, show that they did up there, and we had a blast. And but I never had, and, and I, a, a good friend of mine, um, Don Smith, he was an engineer. He used to do all of uh, Keith's wrist records with mm-hmm. Steve and. Jordan, everybody, and so he had called me down on a Stones session one time, and they used to have people come in and just sit in and jam on their sessions. But whether it ended up on a track or just for inspiration or just to you know bring that a different spirit into the mood of the recording sessions, you know, Nick was Nick was brilliant. It mm-hmm. it it just 
capturing the moment, creating a moment, you know, and those things don't happen all the time. I mean, you gotta, you gotta either stay out of the way or know when to jump in and, and put some elements out there that will, will bring something. And when it appears, you better be ready to capture it. So he had <laughs> set up in their sessions and that's why he's got all those great recordings that they got, you know? Okay. That's great. Moments. Yeah. What did you, now you toured with Bowie for the Diamond Dogs tour, correct? Yeah. Yeah. But you're not on the David Live album. Do you know why? Um, well, no, I am on Dave. Dave, Dave <laughs> live at, um, what was it? Philadelphia Tower Theater or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, the Universal Amphitheater, which is, I think it's called, um, matter of fact, BBC filmed it. And it was recorded, and there's a live album from that show. Really? It's called, jeez. Um, the one the I was thinking of is David Live from Philadelphia, and he's no. in, like, the blue suit and the red hair. He's just yeah. about to transition into, like, the Young Americans stuff. This is, this is not Philly. This was okay. the uh, yeah. And, oh, jeez, well, I wish you could remember the name, but it's I'll look it really up. good. Yeah, it's a great live show, and BBC, like I said, had filmed that whole show and 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 broadcasted several times over the years. And we're talking, you know, the mid seventies here. Mm -hmm. How did, did he was, recruit I, you? Did Bowie call you and say, "I love Sly, I want you in my band"? Tell me, Bowie's well, my number I, one of all time, by the way. So tell me about it. This this was uh, the Diamond Dogs tour. Yeah, okay? and is what happened. When I had left fly, it took off for about a year, and I didn't tour or anything. I just took off. And then when I got the bug to go back out and play, you know, I started getting calls. And at that time, Dougie Rouch, bass player, we used to be with the Voices, be Charlie, and ended up playing with Santana for a bunch of years. He came out from New York and lived with me for a while. So me and Dougie were hanging out and he introduced me actually to several unique musical experiences. You're probably going to bring up here. Uh, so he got the call first for Bowie mm. and looking for me also. So me and Doug were already hanging out. So we were a perfect rhythm section to get. Yeah. And, uh, and Dougie called me. So they just got a call for the Diamond Dog story. They'd like to have you too. You want to do it? I said, sure, let's do it. Yeah. And he also entered Dougie Rouch also introduced me to Miroslav Beatos, which led to the weather report. Oh, I wondered how that came in. Okay. And uh, so these were just incredible time and mm -hmm. opportunity. And just wonderful experiences to go out. You know, these different, you know, where I came from, Musically, and to have these opportunities to go out and do, you know, with David, who was a great writer, incredible entertainer, very talented, and that from that to, you know, the Sly to the Weather Report, Jerry Garcia Band, and all these just diverse. This is what San Francisco was about. All the yeah, diverse. That's what I was just thinking. Yep. What I was about earlier. These are very different things, you know. Mm -hmm. Very different musics. Yeah. I grew up in Concord, by the way. But I, I We moved when I was 10. But I grew up yeah. in the Bay Area in Concord. And then I moved back to 
the Bay Area after college and lived in San Mateo for a while, San Ramon, and I moved to Sacramento. Anyway, so I have my roots are in California as well, although not anymore. We don't have any family or friends still left out there. But um, yeah, I love it out there. Now, tell me one Bowie story. What any, any interaction with him? Any anything? That was a pretty intense time for him. Uh, you know, we used to hang out and talk a little bit. He always, you know, interviews or putting makeup on or doing. There was always something going on where there were several people around helping him to accomplish that thing mm -hmm. going on. But, I mean, you know, he was the, he was under I mean, a lot of pressure. And, uh, and, but he brought it to the table. He, he performed. And I think that when it was, you know, in those times where he kind of, uh, when he wanted to let go or take time off, it was like, it was that character and it was just who he wanted to be just mm -hmm. chill and all that intensity, not all that attention. I think mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons it moved. I think it moved to Germany for a year or two. Yeah. He did yeah. right after that yeah. with, with yeah. Iggy. Yeah. Okay. I was curious. All right. One more. Um, you had a longstanding relationship with Lee Oscar at, mm -hmm. touring and playing with him. For anyone who doesn't know, he's the harmonica player in war. He had his own kind of solo career going there for a while. It's really fun stuff. I don't, I don't think it's, it's really under the radar now, but I had a buddy, yeah. Eric, who was really into it and he turned me onto it. What was it like being with Lee? Well, I, and was I that your main gig for a while? I mean, is that how you're paying the bills as being Lee's drummer? I asked to, uh, that was one of the reasons like that I didn't go out with Betty and even some other tours. I was, cause I was producing Lee's records. I wondered. So, okay. so we collaborated writing, uh, and I produced the records and played on them. And, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, one of the songs there's a song called San Francisco Bay that we did back then. A million people in San Francisco. A million people I don't really know. 900,000 doing nine to five. A hundred thousand staying up all night. that it became a derivative and came out under another title, another name, but it was a derivative of, for instance, uh, Pitbull and Keisha put a song called Timber out in 2015. And the funny story is, so I had, so that's from San Francisco Bay from this, mm -hmm. you know, but now there's 11 writers on it instead of just the original three. And uh, they did, you know, did something with that original vibe. 
So I'm sitting one night 10 years ago watching the American Music Awards. Mm-hmm. And there's this guy on there hosting the show, Pitbull. I didn't know who he yeah. was. Watching this, you know, okay. And I'm just looking at him, okay. And, you know, just, I'm just watching. You know, mm-hmm. So mid, mid, midway through the show, they're taking a, a, a break. And the guy, the announcer says, well, when we return, you can hear uh, Pitbull's new single, Pitbull and Keisha. I didn't think anything of it. It didn't relate to me. It just went by. I caught it. It went by me. Uh, commercials over, everything. They come back. Boom, hit the stage. There's this big entourage on the stage. Three seconds into the song, I'm coming off the roof because I jumped from my couch <laughs> up to the roof. Holy shit. That's one of me songs. I mean, it's, and I run to the phone as it's playing. The phone tried to call Lee. I left him a message because no one answered, and he called shortly after. And this is San Francisco Bay, and it's called Timber. Okay, uh-huh. and then went on to just become just I don't know, sold like 10, 11 million units worldwide. Dream, oh. and uh, I just like where'd that come from, you know? <laughs> and actually, uh, 10, 15 years before that, uh, came up with this guy. Uh, his name, he had a white scissor rapper. Mm. He, he had sampled the tune, San Francisco Bay. And um, all I ever wanted was the title. Mace. That's who it is. Mace. That's what I thought. Mace. Yes. Mace. The rapper. Yeah. Yeah. Mace. I thought so, and I wasn't sure. Yes, Mace. So, you know, uh, me and Lee, did, you know, we had to. I mean, we used orchestras and all kinds. We went to all kinds of musical, uh, you know, places with his music, you know. And he's still out there. He's got a, he manufactures uh, really a high-end harmonica now. That, you know, distributes all over the planet. And uh, matter of fact, we just redid one of the songs that we did on the first album. It's called BLT. Um, uh, Funky, it's called now Funky Rhetoric. It's it's a derivative of the original BLT, and it's uh-huh. on one of the new new uh, population that he put out. You know, wow, it's that's new, great. Yeah, but let me ask you: we we try to cover the sensitive cover sensitively the business side of things. Did you get paid for the pit bull thing? Oh well, <laughs> I had to go after it. Yeah, we, I bet we you had did. To go, yeah, yeah, and we call it the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I still get, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's a, a long, dark story on the, with the, the people that, uh, published, uh, the, you know, the original recording of San Francisco Bay that Lee and I did. Yeah. Uh, uh but yeah. Okay. Did. And do you, do you prime, I mean, I know you play out a lot. Um, you're a legend and so anyone would be super honored to have you on their recording. Do you make a living? Is your primary living coming from like Sly and the Family Stone royalties? Does it come from playing out? You don't have to answer this if you don't want to, or you don't have to be too specific, but I'm just wondering what a legacy guy like you, how do you make a living? In the midsection of between when we started this and and up until now, you're talking about over 50 years. There is decades where I'd never see a penny of anything. Uh, 
Now there's things like sound exchange and the AM, FM. There's, there's things where if you were uh, a featured artist, uh, there's royalties getting like it's from streaming and all these, you know, the, the whole music business has changed. Yeah. But back in the day, you know, we weren't getting our, our share of what we were supposed to get. Okay. Um, I wondered so about that. that. Well, and you still live you know, in the Bay Area, right? It's not cheap to live there. It's not cheap to live there. I just, speaking of which, I just moved to Las Vegas. I am in Las Vegas right now. Really? I home and I came down here. Well, first of all, sadly, I'll say that, you know, the Bay Area, San Francisco is not the place I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's not. It's not a secret of what the challenges are. And not only San Francisco, but a lot of major cities mm-hmm. with homeless, drug addiction, and mentally ill, and just the condition yeah. of the cheese. We, we, this, this is something that, that's serious, and it's a worldwide thing. Not, yeah. well, like, I go to Italy a lot, and I don't see that like, mm. like it is in the States. Yeah. I'm talking about myself. My sons lived up in Seattle, up there, LA, everywhere. It's, it's not, you know, not like a, you know, it's only in this neighborhood. That no, I know. I know what you mean. I can't. So, I don't know any, if you see this, but I living in Denver, it feels like there are just so many areas where there's tents everywhere. It's like yeah. little homeless communes yeah. just sprout up in the middle of like an intersection, practically. Yeah. You know. We're, yeah. we're getting, we're moving towards Mad Max here. Yeah. In the movie. yeah. You know, it's kind of, and, and you know, it's something's really got to be done. And I, and actually I had just met someone, uh, uh, San Francisco, um, uh, to, um, it works, uh, you know, Salesforce. Yeah, you know, I do. Salesforce. I use it every they're, day. They're, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're huge. Well, anyway, uh, he's kind of heading a division to address exactly what we're talking about with the resources available from private companies and from, you know, the foundations and this funding sources of people that could actually do things in the community and put these things together to develop a program. It's not even named or it might be named. I don't know what the name of it is, but with, uh, that, that will address this and do something because it's not government, you know, it's, it's, it's going to do this, obviously. Yeah. Um, going to have to be something beyond that. So these, there's, there's forces that are coming together right now to deal with some of this stuff and right. it's overdue. And, um, um, I, I really hope we'll, we'll support those yeah. forces because it's got to be done it's bad i i have some strong feelings about it that would take a whole other hour basically i feel like the closing of all of the mental hospitals that we used to have where you could yeah put a lot of these people to get them help um i've had questions exactly that was the reagan era yeah it was there wasn't enough profit to be made in those mental hospitals so they got rid of them all and just uh medicated everybody and expected them yeah. to go out and live like regular people, and they can't. And you just take all these people who are mentally ill and put them in a safe space, like a mental hospital. Forget that you're not going to make billions of dollars off of it, but it's the right thing for everybody. And just let let them live their lives in a safe spot, you know? 
Uh, you pay for all these other things in the in the in the military and everything else. You can't pay for these people to just have a place to live. You know. Yeah. Anyway, I, it gets me fired up. Um, no, no. I, so, yeah. I, I think it's it's something. There's a consciousness that is coming about that you know, and I, I think inertia once it's created and once there's some uh, the beginnings of some programs that make sense and seem like they're going to work. I think you, there's a, will be a lot of inertia from just people everywhere supporting this stuff and we'll, we'll start to make a difference, but it's, it's, it's not good right now. Yep, yeah, I agree. Okay. So one last question. To, oh, go ahead. I, I moved down to Vegas because I want to get back into, I want to put some music projects together and this is the place to do it. I'm glad you, know, you did. And like, you know, San Francisco, I grew up and born and raised there family there, but there's a lot of change. I've lost my folks mm -hmm. in the last couple brother and a lot of friends you know we you know we're getting at that age to where that's just going to be part of the program and that's yeah. what happens yeah. so it was it time is. to go and uh i did a lot of people i did this is a great place to be and there's so much happening here yeah. all the franchises are down here now mm -hmm. you know at the big uh um uh, uh, um you know uh, theaters and stuff like yes. this the sphere Tons of them, yes. Sound and, uh, you know, all the artists and acts have loved to, and are doing residency here now. So it's, yeah. it's here. It's, yeah. The intersection. It's a good spot. My mom lives yeah. in St. George, Utah, which is just yeah. about 100 miles from you. So right. uh, maybe I'll come take you to dinner sometime when I'm down there. Okay. okay. Last question. Where do yeah. you keep your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame statuette? Do you have like a trophy room? Or do you have, is it in the bathroom? Is it on the bed stand, the nightstand? Where is it? I had a studio where all that stuff, you know, with albums and drum sets. Uh -huh. and I have the studio, uh, but I just moved out of the, that house last year. So everything is in storage mm -hmm. and I'll be studying that again, you know, down here. Yeah. yeah. You should make it the centerpiece of your dining room table or something like that. You know? Oh, I had your, like... <laughs> Big room that was a studio and like, okay stuff was like, that works too that works too yeah well greg i, I, I mean oh go ahead uh, stick people i know you you should check this out stick people so when the pandemic started and everybody stopped touring after you know some months into it you know i mean nobody's touring right uh -huh. so the short story five drummers from the bay area got together and started doing a zoom. I heard about this. Tell me more. You got to check it out because it ended up being, we started zooming. We would do three times a week, an hour and a half each time relentlessly. We 18 months, we did it straight. And a few months into taping us just like we're on the street corner talking. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. just figuratively. that's what it was really comfortable. And all about our musical experiences and all, you know, we, and those drummers are, by the way, David Garibaldi from Tower Power, Michael Shreve from Santana, Mike Clark from Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, uh, Lenny White from Miles Davis, the thing, and myself from Slime Family Stone. So we go, man, we're having, so, and it was kind of like I said one time, uh, hey guys, you know, this is our therapy. You know, mm -hmm. no one's touring, all yeah. stuck in the house. And then, and we're having a ball and it was just a really natural, no script, no agenda. 
We're just off the cuff, right? That's great. So we to start inviting people. And let's not just invite drummers to talk with us. Mm-hmm. Let's invite, you know, so we had drummers, bass players, keyboard players, uh, 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 people from the media, uh, disc jockeys, just everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And we think about nine episodes out with the likes of, like, us with Billy Cobham, uh, Stanley Clark, uh, Antonio Sanchez, Young Drummer. Are they in uh, podcast format or are they on YouTube? What are they? If you do uh, Google or go on YouTube, Stick People, one word, Stick People, a capital S and a capital P, it'll come up. Okay. Come up. I'm looking at your Facebook page right now. Yeah. And there's some really interviews. And unlike, you know, a media person doing an interview with a celebrity, you know, a famous drummer or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, I, this is, they're talking to five drummers. So it's just totally different. Genius. Paradise. Love it. And very cool. Love very it. Cool you okay. Yeah. Uh, we'll get the word out. Greg, uh, obviously you're a legend and you put out so much work in this world that means a lot to me and to millions of other people. It's made our lives better. So thank you for being you and being on the path that your life has taken all this time because it's meant the world to so many of us. Thanks for being you. I appreciate that. And that, that thought is inspiring to me and, and drives me to continue to do it. God Good. willing. Good. Good. All right. There you have it. Gregorico. Pretty great, right? I, uh, I, there's gotta be just a definitive something for this band. Um, out there somewhere before the story just goes away they deserve it and it's a it it couldn't be a more provocative story when you consider all of the troubles that sly has had in spite of being a musical genius it just it doesn't make sense anyway check out stick people i put the link in of it uh link to it in the description of the show here so go see what greg is talking about it's really fascinating cool stuff now next week we're going with we're going <laughs> completely opposite uh, direction. One of the more modern or current bands we've we've featured on the show. We normally go back to like the seventies, eighties, and nineties. This is a band, member of a band that's probably one of my favorite bands of the two thousands. And uh, I don't make exceptions like that very often unless I love and am passionate about the artist we're talking to. And I am in this case, and I think you will be too. There. You might know them as well. They were a big part of that, you know, the Britpop scene and everything that kind of exploded in the early 2000s. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with everybody. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything. Uh, you guys know the drill. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on X or Twitter for the time being, at the Hustle Pod. Um, again, because of everything that's going on in Yan's world these days, bonus material comes out when it comes out. We have a couple of book clubs. We've got a deep dive. We've got a panel. And there's more being recorded. So this stuff might just trickle out whenever it can over the next couple of months. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.